Hello, and welcome to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. I am Jamie Mize. Today is a special current event episode on Ukraine and Russia. In addition to establishing this podcast to share our love of history, we hope to demonstrate the relevance of history as a discipline. At the most basic level, historical consciousness is vital for human society as the past shapes our present circumstances. To explore this point, I sat down with Dr. Anthony Johnson to discuss current events in Ukraine. Dr. Johnson is an assistant professor of modern European history at UNCP. Okay, thank you, Dr. Johnson, for joining me today to give us some historical context on events happening in Ukraine. Um, I know that we could go far back in time, hundreds, hundreds of years, given the fact that we only want to chat for, you know, about an hour or so. Let's maybe think about starting in the 20th century. Okay. So where where should we begin, Dr. Johnson? Uh, you, well, we can begin in any number of ways, but I guess you could kind of take a snapshot of the Russian Empire in like 1901. And you could see this is this huge, multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic, you know, uh, and, and if you want to look at it as such a multinational empire of which Ukraine is one portion of it. Uh, you've got Poles, Belarusians, Ukrainians, Kyrgyz, Kazakh, you've got all these different groups. And the crisis point, it, you know, you have several crises really for late imperial Russia. You have the you know, Russo-Japanese War, 1904-1905, a revolution of 1905. And you've got a lot of people within this Russian empire agitating for increased autonomy and increased rights. You've had several Polish uprisings up until this point in Russia's history. You've got a you know, one of my areas is Siberian regionalism. So you have ethnic Russians living in Siberia wanting increased rights and increased autonomy. When the regime itself collapses in February or March of 1917, depending on which calendar you want to use, this is this is a kind of point where many of these different groups say, you know, maybe we'll have an opportunity for increased rights and increased autonomy. The imposition of Bolshevik power in, again, October or November, depending, like I said, on which calendar you choose to use, uh, the imposition of a Bolshevik regime comes with a statement about the rights of the peoples of the old Russian Empire to self-determination. But that gets that gets snapped back fairly quickly. Uh, for example, Poland gets carved out of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, the old Russian Empire, and the old German Empire in the wake of the First World War. Poland will end up fighting a war with Russia, soon to be the Soviet Union, in like 1920, 1921, and the people in Ukraine join the Poles in this fight against the Russians. And, and so there's, there's a little bit of animosity there. There's a little bit of stress, a little bit of tension in that relationship. And maybe 
as some people have pointed out, the Ukrainians hope to leverage the highly destabilized nature of the Bolshevik regime during the Russian Civil War into an independent Ukraine in much the same way that the the Poles had gotten independent Poland. But you know, pushing it forward, the establishment of the Soviet Union and the constituent Soviet republics of which Ukraine is one in 1922, the the nature of the regime itself, which you know, completely disavows the rights of these nations or these national groups to self-determination and just the the tension in in the relationship between some of these constituent republics and the soviet regime uh you know, by 1922 stalin is the general secretary he's not the man in power but stalin as head of nationalities for the soviet regime is I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase it. He's Georgian, but he is a great Russian chauvinist. He really believes that the you know that great Russians should be the ones to dominate the Soviet Union, and he also has this idea that the capitalist nations around the Soviet Union are ready at a moment's notice to kind of strangle the Bolshevik baby in the cradle, and this is a you know, that particular theme is a thing that we see time and time again in Russian history, the idea that the, the Western nations are just waiting to pounce as soon as they see a weakened Russia. How far, you know, what else do we need to discuss? Uh, the, the, well, the Holodomor, for example, right? What were you well, going to say? I was just going to ask you a question. So is, is Stalin unique in this mindset or is this very much in keeping with ideas and I guess identities. I mean, how much, cause there's been a, in terms of the current conversations that are happening, it's certainly the way that Vladimir Putin's frame things is that, you know, this is about rescuing, you know, all these ethnic Russians that are in Ukraine, how historically speaking, so maybe around this time period that we're discussing right now, how much diversity is there? ethnic diversity is there in Ukraine? Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of ethnic diversity in Ukraine. You've got uh, the eastern portions naturally are going to be more ethnically and linguistically Russian. The western portions are, are going to be more ethnically and linguistically Ukrainian. You've got Poles in the north. You've got uh, along the southern border, which it shared. It, you've got a, a mix of different peoples. And I didn't necessarily want to get into this right now, but since you since you bring this up, I mean, you can you can reach back into the 1800s to look at a policy of Russification on the part of the czarist regime, which sought to to promote uh, you know linguistically Russian aspects, culturally Russian aspects. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, the autocracy. Uh, I, I guess the catchphrase would be like um, autoc- uh, autocracy, orthodoxy, and great Russian nationality. And we see that a lot, even today, a- as you were talking about. And a lot of this has to do with Vladimir Putin kind of dominating the discourse. 
over what's going on, shaping the narrative of what's taking place. Uh, Putin can't get past this idea of the Russian world. Uh, if you're ethnically and linguistically Russian, if the faith, faith you practice is the Russian Orthodox Christian faith, he says, you, then you're Russian. Right? You practice the Orthodox faith, you're Russian. If you speak Russian, you're Russian. If you trace your ethnic lineage back to great Russians, then you're Russian. And in his mind, the, the kind of logical extension from that is, you should want to be a part of the Russian nation. And he can't get past this idea that he has created for himself, that those people who are ethnically, linguistically, and religiously Russian should be a part of Russia. Therefore, the people of Ukraine naturally belong within the Russian nation. And if the people of Ukraine gravitate towards the West, if they start to set their own policies, if they start to assert a Ukrainian national identity that is separate from a Russian identity, they're trying to get out of this Russian world. And it's not because they actually have their own identity. It's because the West has somehow gotten to them. Yeah, so there's there's this through line then, isn't there, between mm-hmm. the kind of paranoia of Stalin then and, and some of these concerns? There, there really is, yeah. And and that's and that's little wonder, especially considering how Vladimir Putin has set himself up in Russia over the past twenty two years. The strong man, right? Exactly. And there you have seen this glorification of the strong man, glorification of Stalin as a result of what's going on. So I know I, I jumped us a little bit ahead. So let me, let me try to, let me, let me try to, to, to reel us back. So, um, as you said before, earlier in the 20th century there, Ukraine, Ukraine is hoping to take advantage of some, uh, political destabilization to try to gain independence. And, and that doesn't, that doesn't work out. Um, they become one of the republics of the the Soviet Union. They're very, in terms of the the country itself, it's very valuable, right? I mean, it was the the breadbasket of uh, of the Soviet Union. So is is that is that part of the reason? I mean, historically speaking, of why it's been such a kind of coveted area. And it it still is a a major grain producer even today, right? And it's it, it kind of goes hand in hand with what Stalin hopes to accomplish in like the late 1920s and early 1930s with the five-year plans for industrialization. He's going to have to finance industrialization through the selling of grain to Western nations. And so he can't afford to lose any places like Ukraine. And this is the, the Chernozum, this is the Black Earth region. It's it's the major grain-producing portion of Russia. It's a major grain exporter. And when it comes time, like I said, for you know, modernizing and industrializing Russia, you can't lose a place like Ukraine because, again, the mentality is uh, the Nimsi are coming. Nimsi was like, literally, that's like Germans, but they use the word German and foreigner kind of interchangeably. 
just like the, the West is coming for us. And so we've got to be ready. We've got to industrialize. We've got to, we've got to build up our military because at some point they're going to attack us again. And when they do that, we have to be ready. And so, yeah, they can't envision letting a place like Ukraine slip out of the Russian grasp. I know one of the more horrifying policies is the, the state induced famine. So is that, I mean, is it because all of, Basically, they wanted all of the grain to be exported, and that's why there is this policy put in place. Or, I mean, what what is going on? Uh, we have again. There's there's a historical debate on this. Mark Tauger says that the the famine really isn't as bad as everybody says it was, and it certainly wasn't a conscious policy. Yeah, really isn't a. For those of you, this is an audio medium. I just made I just made a face, and that's what Doctor <laughs> Johnson was stop. commenting on. <laughs> exactly the the uh, the the look of shock and horror. It's the Talger Talger says it really isn't as bad as people think it is. But if you listen to the words of Joseph Stalin at a, I can't remember which post World War II conference it was, but apparently at one conference. Winston Churchill like leans over and whispers to Stalin said you know the I understand that the famine in Ukraine was pretty horrible something like 5 million people died and Stalin says huh, try 15 Talger aside you'll read people like Robert Conquest and he's there are people who were stationed outside of Ukrainian villages Soviet red army troops I should specify stationed outside of Ukrainian villages turning people back at gunpoint, people who are leaving to try and get away from the famine and trying to find some place with food. And they're being physically turned back by the Red Army. It's uh, the, the term most often used to describe the situation by Ukrainians is the Holodomor, which kind of translates as uh, death by starvation or murder by starvation. And this is... This is one of the events on which Ukrainians kind of hang a national identity as being targeted by the regime of Joseph Stalin. Yes, I mean that that seems like that would that makes sense to me. Um and I think so how important do you think it is that you know we say Soviet Union and maybe you can maybe it's easier to comment on how scholars have approached this but how synonymous is soviet union with russia some people use them kind of interchangeably right but russia as the soviet union was fashioned is just one component part of the soviet union the soviet union kind of writ large covers much of the territory of the old russian empire when it dissolved, uh, but in yeah, when the Soviet Union is established in 1922, they the the old Russian Empire is carved up into these uh, kind of cultural ethnic enclaves, and those enclaves become constituent members of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. This this multi-member political entity created. As a result, I think of the 1922 uh, Soviet Constitution. 
it's, like I said, sometimes used interchangeably, but as it existed after the creation of the Soviet Union, Russia is just one component part. Is that how the the leaders saw it, though? I mean, you've already kind of, yeah, I mean, you've already kind of uh, suggested that Stalin certainly viewed things more Russian. Yeah, Stalin is definitely a great Russian chauvinist. He believes that the great Russian language is the way to go, even though, like I said, he's Georgian and he only ever spoke Russian with a distinct Georgian accent. He he idealizes and, and this is something that we could very much bring to uh, to jo- or to Vladimir Putin, how he idealizes the the old Soviet Union. Maybe you could look at Stalin as idealizing the old Russian Empire. Okay, that makes sense. Um, okay, so Stalin, very different sort of leadership, though, with with Khrushchev. Yeah, and, and uh, Khrushchev inaugurates this period of de-Stalinization. I think it's something that we should never forget, though. He's one of Stalin's ringleaders, right? Uh, if if Stalin is the capo de tutti capi, then Khrushchev is one of his lieutenants. And so a lot of the de-Stalinization campaign on the part of Khrushchev is to try and pin what's happened on the Stalin so people forget just how guilty he was. But yes, you have this period of a relaxation or a thaw, I think is how it's typically described, both a, an internal thaw and a thaw in terms of relations with the West. That really ends up not working all of that all that well because you know, what happens to Khrushchev, right? Khrushchev ends up getting removed from power. He ratchets up rhetoric with the West. He ratchets up threats with the West, even as... In certain respects, he's relaxing things within the country, intellectually and culturally. In terms of his relations with other nations, there's really not that much different. Uh, you look at his his reaction to the 1956 Hungarian uprising, in which the Soviet Union simply rolls tanks in and says, no, we will not. And this is our sphere of influence. We are not going to tolerate any deviation from the communist line. Yeah, so you understand how he treats people outside of the Soviet Union. If I'm remembering correctly, there are some political changes that are happening within the Soviet Union. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, there there are. And like I said, this is, I mean, Stalin dies in 1953, and I think it's at the 20th Party Congress, that that Khrushchev gives this secret speech. And he basically lays all of the blames for all of all, all of the blame for all of the bad stuff that happened at the feet of Stalin. And so, like people who had been arrested and sent off to the Gulag, they get to come back home. A lot of them are rehabilitated. You see, kind of reforms within the Soviet Union. Probably the most well-known reform. For uh, for Khrushchev is the uh, the Virgin Lands project in which he tries to open up new lands for agricultural development, and it never never really works out well. But all of these public places and public buildings that have been named after Stalin, they they start to make this shift back to where they they change the names back to the old ones. Uh, 
Okay. So I'm, I'm a little fuzzy. So you'll have to help me out here, but it, it is during Khrushchev's leadership, though, that there is a territorial transfer, correct? The Crimea is transferred to Ukraine. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, you you are. And uh, it, it's not too long after Stalin dies, right? 1954, the Presidium adopts a resolution that takes the Crimean, I think they call it an oblast. I don't think it's a rayon. I think it's too But they take the Crimean oblast out of the Russian Republic and transfer it to the Ukrainian Republic. And that's they do this fairly quietly. They do it without much fanfare, but it's they do say that it's to commemorate the 300th anniversary of the reunification of Ukraine and Russia. You, um, gosh, in the 1740s, 1750s, the hetman of the Zaporozhian Cossacks, and I cannot remember this guy's name to save my life. I probably got it somewhere. But the, the hetman of the Zaporozhian Cossacks is fighting a conflict with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which, you know, in the mid-1600s was a pretty big player in the Eastern European region. And the hetman of the Zaporozhian Cossacks isn't doing all that well in this conflict, and he's looking for help. He sends some representatives to the Russian state. The Russian state says, sure, we'll be glad to work with you against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Here's this, here's this treaty of Pereyaslav sign signed this treaty, and this is in uh, 1654, right, 300th anniversary. So the Russians say, sure, here's the Treaty of Pereyaslav, sign it, and we'll help you in your conflict with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. The hetman signs off on the treaty, and the Russians essentially say, good, now Ukraine is part of Russia. And the, <laughs> the hetman of the Zaporozhian Cossacks is like, no, you mean you're going to help me fight against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And the Russians say, right, like we said, Ukraine is now part of Russia. And that's, yeah, that's just setting up the, gosh, even today, right, we're still dealing with the fallout today for people like Vladimir Putin, who don't look at Ukraine as a separate political entity. They can only think of it as being part of the Russian state. So it was fine then, I guess, as long as, for Khrushchev to do this as long as everyone was still part of the the Soviet Union. Yeah, as you know, we're all we're all comrades, so if you want to transfer the the Crimean Oblast from Russia to Ukraine, so be it. I appreciate the the anniversary, but there yeah. had been some sort of, you know, contemporary political motivation. Can well, the- you think I mean, like why would he do that? Well, the the problem was, I guess, is he's trying to get better relations with other parts of the other component, I should say, uh, republics of the Soviet Union. But he's also trying to get better relations with the Eastern Bloc nations. This is, you know, this is the Cold War context that we're trying to deal with, right? About the same time, the Poles are agitating for greater autonomy within the Eastern Bloc, greater freedom of movement. And they actually get it. And then the Hungarians try the same thing a little later, and the Soviet Union's like, okay, enough's enough. There's, you know, 
there's a little bit of freedom of movement. You guys are trying to take advantage. And so the Soviet Union kind of snaps back in, locks down hard and crushes the Hungarians when they want a little increased autonomy. And so the the Cold War context matters in terms of trying to. So the Cold War context, um, as you say, is, you know, crucial to kind of understanding really every everything that happens after World War II and, and the fall of the wall and maybe even after that. Um, mm-hmm. But again, as we continue our, our gallop through this historical context, um, how do things change as we move into um, the late 20th century and the 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 end of the the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and I guess what the independence of all of the the republics. Sixteen, the sixteen member republics get their independence. Right, the the Soviet Union ceases to exist officially on like Christmas Day, or maybe it was the day after Christmas. I can't recall Merry precisely. Christmas. Yeah, nineteen ninety one. I can still hear in my brain, right, Frosty the Snowman saying happy birthday. Thank you for that one. Uh, but, yeah, things things change dramatically, and it doesn't take very long, right? The, you have, like, the 9th and 10th of November 1989, the Berlin Wall starts to come down. East Germany wants to reunite with West Germany, and that just unleashes forces which flings the Soviet Union apart, or these forces fling the Soviet Union apart. And it's and it happens, like I said, very, very quickly from November of 1989 to December of 1991. The one of the world's two superpowers ceases to exist effectively. And that that really plays on the minds of a lot of people, not the least of whom is Vladimir Putin. He was a young KGB officer in Berlin when everything starts to hit the fan. And he sends a message to Moscow, you know, what do I do? And the response is, Moscow is silent. And that hits him like a ton of bricks. He thinks the, the Soviet regime should be able to respond at a moment's notice, should be ready to take action in this situation. And when word comes back that Moscow is not going to do anything, it really, really plays on the mind of this man. And he's... He's still today, he looks at the fall of the Soviet Union as the, the I guess you could say, the greatest disaster of the 20th century in his mind is the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think you can definitely see how those events have, have shaped him, who he is, and certainly who he is as a politician. Yeah. But if we think about... If we think about Ukraine and how they emerged from the collapse of the Soviet Union... The threat of nuclear war that existed within the Cold War is is maybe something that we want to address because as these republics get their independence, aren't there negotiations because there are warheads, right? In in yep. some in some of these places. So can you talk us through that? Uh yeah, Stephen Kotkin has done a great job. He wrote a book called Armageddon Averted. And it's about the basically the last 20 years of the Soviet Union's existence and the first 10 years of you know, the life of Russia and these new republics. And it really was Armageddon averted because what could have, you know, 
what would have stopped somebody in Ukraine potentially from firing off a nuclear weapon. And there were negotiations on the part of the Russian state to try and get all of these warheads back from the constituent members of the old Soviet Union. A lot of them were on like uh, mobile launchers. Uh, the the way a lot of the old Soviet nuclear arsenal was set up was for rapid deployment and launch. We we tend to think of these massive missiles being in silos or something. And a lot of them were, but many of them are just sitting on the backs of trucks, and they can be moved or deployed at a moment notice. So when you've got these these newly independent states that emerge from the old Soviet Union, I think somebody said there were thirty five thousand nuclear weapons scattered across the old Soviet Union. Ukraine, I think, had over 3,000 warheads. And that's just crazy. It is crazy. They're ready to be fired at a moment's notice. They did. They agreed, though, to to return them. Yeah, they did indeed. And And so that has an impact on everything that's going on today. Yeah. I mean, at uh, as of this point, we're, what, 20, just over 20 years removed from the collapse of the Soviet Union. We have never found another, we have never found a Soviet warhead outside of Russia. And that's that's just amazing considering what could have happened. So we have, we have the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Ukraine is independent. They agree to return any nuclear warheads that they have. But it Mm -hmm. seems now, you know, that with Putin kind of ordering these special nuclear troops to be on standby and everybody's kind of collectively holding their breath, Ukraine has no no method of deterrence. Yeah, no, no recourse. If the if the uh, if they were to la- if the Russians were to launch these nuclear weapons, good Lord, just imagine. Right. I know. You gotta and this is a this is a threat that he's made. Right. I don't know. I listened to a podcast the other day where a gentleman was uh, talking about the the game theory involved in in nuclear warfare, and yeah. that one of the flaws of game theory is that you expect you have to proceed with the expectation that everyone will act in a way that is logical. And you can call what Vladimir Putin has been doing in recent weeks a lot of things, but I don't know that we can call it logical. He's he's created this idea of himself, right? I mean, he's been in power for 22 years, and by this point, the decision-making process has almost fused with the person of Vladimir Lenin, or sorry, Vladimir Putin. We talked about Lenin yesterday in class, has been fused with Vladimir Putin, and it's been fused to the point that he sees himself almost as infallible. If he chooses to do this, then it is the right choice of that or right course of action. And when he talks about Ukraine, what is he really thinking about? He's thinking about the West. He can't drop the Cold War mentality. Right. This is a man who sees the collapse of the Soviet Union as one of the biggest disasters of the 20th century. And so, you know, when in December of 2021, he says, I don't want any NATO deployments in Eastern Europe, I don't want Ukraine to belong in NATO. He's he's unable to divorce himself from this cold we- cold war mentality. Just like he's 
you know, just like other leaders of the Soviet Union before Russia and the Russian Empire before the Soviet Union, they always think the foreigners are coming, the Nimsi are coming. And Putin believes that the West is out to get him. And what we see is how this has become kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in his actions towards Ukraine. Yeah, that 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 makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Thank you for that. The comparison between invading Ukraine and invading Crimea, why is it different? I think it's I think a lot of it has to do with the way he has couched the situation in Crimea. Going back to the point that I was talking about a minute ago, right? He his actions against Ukraine have become kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where he sees the West as being out to get him. He acts in an effort to think that he's going to forestall that. And in reality, he he creates bigger problems for himself. And a lot of this is kind of Putin's attempt, like we were talking about a little while ago, I think, to shape the narrative. And he's done a lot about uh, a very good job of shaping the narrative. Because right now, a lot of people are talking about the NATO and the West in this situation. This is about Russia and Ukraine, right? It's about the people of Ukraine being able to shape their own policies. But Putin doesn't see it that way, right? If, if Ukraine gravitates towards the West, it's because they've been meddled with in some fashion. The West is, you know, the West has opened the door to NATO membership to a lot of Eastern European nations. Uh, the West has trained a lot of Eastern European military commanders in tactics and strategies. The West has supported Western-leaning leaders and has fostered closer cooperation between Eastern European nations and the EU. Putin sees that in that Cold War mentality, right? The West is out to get us. We've got to kind of beat back the barbarians. They're at the gate. And it can't be in Putin's mind that the people of Eastern Europe, and this is, we include Ukraine, right? Can't be that these people want closer relations with the West. It's got to be some malevolent force at play, right? The West is pulling people away from the Russian sphere of influence. And so Putin has done a very, very good job of kind of shaping the Russia versus the West narrative as opposed to Russia versus Ukraine narrative, which is what it really is. Uh, as far as the seizure of Ukraine in 2014, that's kind of where we started with this. Crimea. Or, I'm sorry, yeah, Crimea. Seizing Crimea in 2014, which is where we started with all of this. Yeah, Ukraine kind of began gravitating towards the West in the early 2000s. And then you have a contested presidential election. Uh, eventually, Viktor Yanukovych will be become president, but he gets overthrown in the Maiden Uprising in February of 2014. He, you know, His pronouncement was, you know, we're going to try and balance Ukraine between the West and Russia. But because Ukraine had already started tilting more to the West, in reality, Yanukovych's balancing means starting to tilt Ukraine more in favor of Russia. And these policies prompted the Maiden Uprising in 2014. And he'll he'll flee to these, these regions out in the east and eventually flee to Russia when he's ousted from power. And this is when Russia kind of annexes Crimea in, gosh, February and March 2014. I can't remember what month precisely. And it's it's a reaction to this guy whose policies are leaning more pro-Russian getting ousted from power. 
And you have, oh gosh, a new president coming in in Poroshenko in 2014. Poroshenko will adopt a more pro-Western orientation. He will fight against those pro-Russian separatists in the Donbass region. He'll he'll push them farther to the West. He you know, wants closer relations with the EU and with Poroshenko, and Russia still feels this pinch of a close neighbor growing even closer to the West. Zelensky was a bit of a wild card when he gets elected in 2019. They didn't really know what to expect of him. He's a Russian speaker. He hails from these, you know, more pro-Russian eastern portions of Ukraine. He he, he wins with like 72.8% of the vote, I think, including winning the regions in the east that are very pro-Russian. And lo and behold, what does he do? He actually manages to kind of stand up to the Russians. The the first real like warning sign from Moscow that Zelensky wouldn't be a pushover came when the Russians offered the uh, the Sputnik vaccine, the Russian-developed vaccine for coronavirus, to the Ukrainians, and Zelensky said, "No, thank you. I'll I'll wait for a Western-developed vaccine," and that just kind of pushed things a little bit farther in terms of the uh, the strains between Russia and Ukraine. One of the reasons why I asked about the the validity of the comparison is because not all of Putin's rhetoric, but some of it is was is was similar in both cases. So mm-hmm. the justification for going into Crimea was to rescue all of these ethnic Russian people and Russian speaking people. And I mean, he said a lot of things yeah. uh, about Ukraine and Ukrainian people. But one of the things that he said was about going in and similarly re- saving, rescuing ethnic and Russian speaking people. So that's why I asked you about that comparison. And then the the, versus the, the reality, right? I think a lot of it has to do with Zelensky himself. I mean, who would have expected this kind of reaction out of a man who's a comedic actor. But he was he was given the opportunity to leave Kiev, and he refused. He said, we've got people here who are fighting. I'm not going to leave. And in fact, the, the posting of videos is very stage-managed and orchestrated. But they they really foster the, the idea that the Ukrainians are standing up, that the Ukrainians are fighting. The Ukrainians prior to Zelensky, they fought, but I don't think you can see any kind of resistance to the Russian seizure of Ukraine, or I'm sorry, to the Russian seizure of Crimea in much the same way you're seeing to the attack on Ukraine right now. The seizure of Crimea happened in 2014, and people for the most part said, yeah, okay, whatever. The invasion of Ukraine has taken on a decidedly different look. We have to chalk a lot of that up to how the Zelensky government reacted to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And how they've chosen to fight it. And it's one of, again, of these little ironies of this whole situation. Like uh, like we were talking about earlier, the idea that Putin's actions have become kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in driving Ukraine closer to the West. This idea of the Russian world where you're, if you're linguistically, ethnically, culturally, religiously Russian, then you are Russian. You're part of this Russian world. The Russian decision to invade Ukraine has done a heck of a lot to foster the development of a sense of Ukrainian national identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, I'm sorry to chuckle about 
you know, such events, but it's, it's one of those little ironies that he has kind of, that Putin has kind of created the situation that he didn't want to happen in the first place. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Please join us next time when we will return to histories, mysteries, and true crimes. Speak with you soon. Thank you.